Well, good evening and welcome to another edition of Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. I'm joined once again by David Scott. Welcome to the program, David. Delighted to be here, Mike. So this is, I believe, is our eighth episode, David. And the last time we spoke, it's been a couple of weeks since we've done one, but the last time we spoke, uh, we said we would talk about bank regulation. Yes, uh, and this might seem like a dry subject, but oh, it's not. This gets to the heart of a great many things which are completely fundamental to the way the economy works. Um, it does indeed. Now, probably the most famous regulation of the banks, uh, particularly well in the United States, was the Glass-Steagall Act, uh, which came out of Great Depression. Um, and that was enacted in order to break up the connection between retail high street banking and the so-called investment banks, the speculative banks. Now, there wasn't really, there isn't, or there hasn't been any equivalent legislation in the UK because it was always a gentleman's agreement in the United Kingdom that that, that crossover in activity just didn't happen. And I thought I would just get to the crux of this straight away before we talk about Glass-Steagall itself and, and what happened afterwards. We get to the crux of the matter, and that is this question. Does the speculative banking system need to be regulated if there is that separation in place and it theoretically cannot impact on our day-to-day business affairs and therefore uh, the types of banks that you and I might interface in our, with in our day-to-day business can't become, uh, as they call it, too big to fail? Yeah. Like, like, can we just... Before we go into that, because I think there's an even there's an even more fundamental question underneath that. Right? Glass-Steagall, right? Glass-Steagall, it's separated, as you say, investment banking from commercial banking. And the commercial banks, the ones that we, we would interact with, so they were prevented from dealing in non-governmental securities and investing in non-investment grade securities, underwriting and distributing non-governmental securities, and sharing employees with anyone who will. So that, that, that was basically it. So there was a split between governmental securities uh, and investment-grade securities, which were okay for commercial banks because they were viewed as being such low risk. All right, so you, you're immediately saying that, remember, that there's the assumption of this bit of regulation is that you can lend to governments, all governments, including Greece, and it's low risk. You go, mm-hmm. And the, the blue chip companies are low risk. And you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure that the lesson from the 2008 financial crisis was that the ratings agencies are reliable. I think that's, uh, I think that's not entirely fair. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. Because by the time we get to, to 2008, Glass-Steagall had already been repealed for 20 years. Um, and so 2008, most people, uh, including me, would argue that the 2008 crash became possible because the Glass-Steagall Act was repeal- repealed. But actually, it wasn't just the Glass-Steagall Act uh, because the, pro- the problem actually began, uh, what, 12, 13 years before that with, with the Big Bang, which was the de- deregulation of the City of London. Um, and the uh, removal of the gentleman's agreement, which had created the the same split between investment banking, we called it merchant banking, and commercial banking in the UK. 
So, so I would I would push back a little bit on that and and make the point that 2008 happened because that regulation was gone. Well, perhaps, but 2008 showed that the rating agencies were completely owned. Now, it's a bit difficult to say what the reason was that they were completely owned, but they were completely owned. Uh, they, would, they were giving, essentially, ratings for fee. That's what was happening. So that the, this, the split that Glass-Steagall, if we were to reintroduce the Glass-Steagall Act, for example, or something equivalent in the UK, the split that Glass-Steagall Glass in, in, created that does not create the protection for the commercial banks that that it might be advertised as providing. Well, but I but I disagree with that. Absolutely, I, I totally disagree with that because the ratings agencies were a product of that deregulation, as as they were in two thousand and eight. And in fact, oh, but they 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 pre they pre existed. I mean, we're talking about the split being in between investment grade securities and non investment grade securities in part, and the definition of what's investment grade is done by the rating agencies. You can't trust the rating agencies. You can't trust the split. So it, it becomes much more complex. But bef before going into the, 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 the issue of Glass-Steagall, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a deeper underlying impetus here, which is why is it even necessary to, to split this? What's the, what's the reason um, that, uh, and, and there's a very specific reason, that the banking industry is not like any other industry. Why does it need so much more regulation? And and the reason is that that it's granted a legal privilege, and the and the legal privilege is basically they're allowed to commit fraud. Fractional reserve banking is fraud. They take deposits. The people who give them the deposits think that the money's there. Whenever they go to the bank, they can get the money, but the money's not there. They're, they're doing something else with the money. So that's a special privilege, a legal privilege, where they're allowed to commit fraud and no other business is allowed to commit fraud in the same way. If you have a grain silo and a farmer puts grain into it, the grain's got to be there. You can't take the grain out and do something else with it and sell it and then hopefully put it back just before he comes to look for his grain. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a special privilege and that generates a special hazard, right? Does it Because you're going to suck money in from the, from the public and then, then do what? Then speculate for private gain. Let me just deconstruct that a little bit. First of all, I agree with you that there's a special privilege. But then the example of the special privilege you gave was uh, something which inhabits the realm of the commercial banking that you and I interface with. If we look at what's going on with investment banking, the situation's even worse. Now you're talking about the grain silo. But of course, in the, inv in the investment banking world, in the merchant banking world, the grain silo is securitized. So you, you're starting to uh, look at, you're not looking at the grain silo anymore. You're looking at a piece of paper that represents the grain silo. And then you're looking at a further piece of paper that represents a piece of paper that represents the, gold, the grain silo. And, and so the, the, the reason I would argue that you need that separation, first of all, no matter, no matter what other regulation you might put on the commercial banking side, which we can talk about, or on the investment banking side, the speculative side, the reason you need that separation is because the speculative side, when that separation isn't there, has the potential to hold every individual in the world to ransom because it affects, because their behavior affects our day-to-day -day business. Now, if uh, we have a, a speculative banking system where a bunch of, of people with lots of bits of paper that they think is valuable 
want to play with that bits of paper amongst themselves. This is where, why I was asking this question. So long as that separation is in place, does that really matter? Well, well, well yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think, I think I, and I do want to come, I'm not keep judging this question. I do want to come to that. <laughs> right? But before, just before we do, I point out that if you don't have fractional reserve banking, you don't have the fraud, you don't have the money being taken while you still think it's there, then none of this applies. That it's that that the you're asking a regulator to sort a problem that manipulation of the law via regulation has in fact created. I need to get you to explain that a little bit a little bit more. What is the relationship between fractional reserve banking and a derivative? Because because you're implying you're impl- you say well, at least that's my understanding of what you're saying. You seem to be implying that that the core of the problem is fractional reserve banking. When in fact, once we get into the speculative world, there's a whole new degree of fraud, which is quite different to fractional reserve banking. Yeah, the core of the problem is fraud, right? Um, and yes, I'm I'm not limiting or reducing the the amount and complexity and varieties of fraud that we're finding in this, but. In terms of the commercial banks, the core fraud is fractional reserve banking. And my, my point is the regulation, right, and the, spe- and, and the special privilege that goes with it. By regulation, I mean manipulation of the law to make things permitted or not permitted in a, in a special way that is not the regular rules that apply to everybody else. The first thing that that does is it introduces fractional reserve banking. That allows the banks to take your deposits and do something else with them. And if that if that permission is not there, then a, a huge amount of the risk goes away because they simply can't take the money and do anything with it. It's, it's got to be on deposit. And the, then then you get things like deposit insurance from from the state or from the banking industry, which allegedly guarantees the deposits. Because people know that the fractional reserve banking system is doing something else with their money. They know that the money's not all there. This creates doubt and concern over the bank. So to reassure that, another level of regulation comes in. And they introduce this scheme, and every bank's got to be part of the scheme. And the scheme is to insure the deposits. But the, the money insuring the deposits is tiny in comparison to the deposits. So it it looks like... Yes, it's a, it's a fractional reserve as well. It's a fractional reserve as well. And really what it's saying is, if it all goes horribly wrong, we'll probably print the money. Trust us for it. Okay? And at the, at the moment, that's that. But of course, in the process of printing the money, they're devaluing the money. So actually, what they return to you is worthless uh, Yeah, there are, there are many problems. But the core problem is, this, the scheme backing the deposit insurance doesn't have enough money in it to back the import deposit insurance, but you're meant to feel confident. It's another, it's another lie. It's another piece of fraud. Now, the UK scheme is meant to have, it's 100,000 euros still. It's 85,000 pounds that's guaranteed by the government if you have a bank account. If you've got a joint bank account, you multiply that by two. If you have, if you've inherited three quarters of a million pounds and it's resting in your account just for a little while, that's insured too. If at the same time you've got, uh, that your relative has died and, and, and left you their house and you've sold that and that money's resting in your account, that's insured too for everybody based on almost nothing. It's based on a very small pot of money. So, there's there's another so that that scheme is to 
provide public confidence. And what that does is it takes away scrutiny. So the banks are not scrutinized by their shareholders, not scrutinized by their customers the way they should, because the government's saying, don't worry, it's all right, just follow the rules, we'll be fine. Okay, so this is the this is the, the banking equivalent of the fire regulations in Grenfell Tower. So it's to create confidence where in fact there should be scrutiny of the first principles of what's going on. Okay, I, I, I get all that, but in terms of our separation of the banking structures, that you're you're still living in or still talking in the commercial banking world. And but we have this other thing which is a bigger mess in terms of both the amount of uh, or the, the alleged value of the of the paper that they're pushing around, and also in terms of its potential effect on us as individuals. Yeah. So the so the your question was, and I'm now I'm now getting to it. Your question was, if that goes, we can insulate it, and it goes. Does it affect the real economy? Okay. Now. I have to plead a certain amount of ignorance here, and I want to explore this, and I might be more asking you questions than anything else. It, it seems impossible to me that you can have a financial failure of this sort of magnitude and it not affect the real economy. Who holds the paper is the first question. Um, do pension companies hold, do pension funds hold the paper? Uh, yes, uh, uh, pension funds will hold some paper. Now, if I go back to the mid, the late 90s or early 2000s, pension funds, charities, and these types of organizations were absolutely discouraged from, from investing in hedge funds. They were discouraged in investing in high-risk areas. I probably saw that starting to change about uh, around the late noughties, as they call it. Um, and now everybody is forced to invest in pension funds, charities, and the uh, local authorities. Everybody is forced to invest in high-risk investments because, of course, we're now in a very special time where there is no interest-bearing account available that will offer anything sensible. There's no fixed income option for even government bonds aren't really an investment anymore in terms of any kind of return. So people are forced to invest in higher risk instruments. But again, this, I would argue, is, is, a, is a feature or a result of the deregulation of the banking system that began with the Big Bang? Well, I mean, I, I would argue the opposite. And it's quite interesting that we're coming at this from opposite, the opposite ends, and but seeing the same problems. I would argue that it's actually the result of the regulation, because who's regulating interest rates to zero? Well, that's the Bank of England. That's central control. That's central regulation. Who's who's printing vast amounts of money? Central body of Bank of England. Um, it's, it's, it's issuing... Uh, huge amounts of cash to buy government debt at, at near zero uh, interest rates. Who's decided all of these things? It's central regulatory uh, control. Okay, but I'll explain why I don't agree with that. And, and, it's, and it's this. What we are seeing from the central regulatory control at the moment is uh, organizations which have relatively little scope for real regulation. In fact, they don't even want to impose any real regulation. And what they're doing is responding to the effects of deregulation. So it's because of the effects of deregulation that they are in the position that they have to take the actions that they're taking. But they have so few um, options in their, uh, in their weapons cache uh, in terms of any real regulation that they're left 
you know, clambering about searching for some solution to the to the effects of deregulation, the, the bad behavior that's going on couldn't have happened in nineteen eighty. <clears throat> is that is that correct? Um What's changed? Is it really the regulation? Because the banking industry remains the, the most regulated sector of the economy. It's coming down in regulations. In fact, so severe are the regulations and so complex that uh, we, we reported um, when, when the Airdrie Savings Bank, the last independent savings bank in the UK, went out of business. It, it went out of business not because it was bust, not because it was insolvent, not because of any of these things. It went out of business because... The regulatory burden was too much for a small bank to survive anymore. And it, it was just, it was gone. It was taken out by regulation. Now, that means there's barriers to entry. You can't have new banks coming in that are small. Only big players need apply. So you, you, you immediately take out competition as a, as a regulatory effect because there, there isn't any. You're permitting fraud on various fronts. You're giving them special privilege. You're introducing... Um, insurance schemes um, and other things which are moral hazards, other, other things like, um, you know, the green span put, like a, a political and, and central banking system that says, whatever happens, we will print money and we will bail you out. Don't you worry, you're too big to fail. That creates moral hazard. So the moral hazard says, take risk because we've, we've, we're going to socialize the bad effects if it goes wrong. You keep taking risks, you get some, you get some cash out of that. All of these things break down everything that would normally regulate human behavior. All right? Now, I, I agree that there's been a process of this where it's been getting worse and worse and worse. And the degree to which old-fashioned, conservative with a small c, banking industry culture has gone, where gentlemen's agreements would be, you know, we don't do that and we don't need regulated because, because good chaps like us know how to behave. That's gone as well. Yes, um, the, the big bang and the opening up of, uh, to, to the speculators of essentially everything has been uh, a huge accelerant. I mean, I think the fire was already going, but that, that poured petrol on it absolutely shoot you. Know, I quite agree with that point, that it's, it's made things much worse. What I question is, if we're talking about regulation to fix things in the most regulated sector of the economy, should we not actually be looking at the core problems, which is regulate to remove the special privilege of fractional reserve banking, and then and, and special privileges within um, merchant banking, regulate to remove the moral hazard, as opposed to pile more procedures on top of these underlying problems, which will remain uh, there driving the system towards collapse. Right. Well, uh, right. Let me let me address this a little bit then. First of all, you talked about the regulation on small smaller banks and the barrier to entry and this kind of thing that that's absolutely true there is a level of regulation which effectively games the market for the established participants that's absolutely correct that's at the again at the high street level so the small player cannot get in now there are there in recent years have been efforts to uh, disrupt that in areas where it suits the banking industry. So, for example, some small players, tech-based players that are that are electronic money only. They're not dealing in checks. They're not dealing in cash. Uh, they're only transferring money between bank accounts, and you run an app on your phone. Um, and they are 
being allowed to operate on the basis of having a already established commercial bank behind them. So there is some limited entry into the market, but only if you have an established market participant holding your hand. Yeah, we've we've seen this with Virgin and money is now. Uh, a, a but I'm thinking I'm thinking of of organisations like Tide and 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 some of these uh, smaller tech organisations that are that are coming in in the last couple of years, and they, they provide a, a useful service for people. But but they the point is they are not banks; they are uh, able to present themselves as if they're banks. But they are effectively what they've done is that they they've taken everybody's. Uh, um, uh, cash uh, that's in your account, and they are holding that in a formal bank account with a, a, an already established bank that's in the market already. So they're they're able to market themselves as if they're banks, but they're not really banks. Anyway, that is that. What you say is absolutely right. There, people cannot. They have got a very very high barrier of entry to get into the banking system at that level, at the commercial banking level, and it's practically impossible for somebody to actually establish a bank in competition with the banks that are there at the moment. That's true. However, once you start getting into the speculative world, the situation is quite different. You can have, for example, a hedge fund of a kind um, that is investing in the most risky way possible. And the way that they do it is that they establish um, a UK company, which is regulated by the Financial Services Authority. And then they establish a subsidiary or a parallel company in the Cayman Islands or in Jersey or in Guernsey, uh, which is completely unregulated. Um, and so that the way, so the way they avoid the regulation that you're talking about, David, is to simply establish themselves offshore where there is no regulation. And that allows them to operate in whatever way they see fit in the speculative markets without having to deal with the regulatory burden that you're talking about. Of course, the regulatory burden, those regulations allow those companies to do that. Uh, and so, and that, of course, is an intentional loophole. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you mean. Uh, it, it is an intentional loophole. Um, the question you raised earlier is, if this goes horribly wrong, does it affect people who did not sign up for it? Well, look, the, the reason I asked that question is this. Right back at the very beginning of this series, uh, when we were talking about the days when there was actual competition in the banking system, and, and banks tended to be relatively small, you know, you, had your, you created your bank in your local town, and if that bank suffered losses, then you as the bank owner suffered those losses and, and your, your members suffered those losses. And there was competition between branches and so on. And it was a relatively free market situation. I, I think I'm right in saying that. Yes. My point is that, 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 or my question is, if people want to speculate with money that they own or that they, or they've convinced somebody to invest with them, if they want to speculate with that at their own risk, should they be free to do that so long as the implications for society are, are managed? In other words, there's a nice big wall built around them to make sure that when they go bust, it's only them and the people that have invested with them that suffer under yeah, those circumstances. I, I, this is a very good question. And I, I would question whether the wall actually exists or can exist. So we've talked about local authorities and pension funds putting the money in. So if it goes bust, that's going to affect the ordinary people. 
it's going to affect some ordinary people probably to the point of being on the street unless they're bailed out. And there'll obviously, obviously be a huge impetus for central government and central banks to essentially print the money and, and, and make up the difference, which means everybody ends up paying. But other things are happening as well, because talking about things like hedge funds now, they're, they're essentially speculating on, for example, the strength of national currencies and the effects of this and huge, huge flows of money will mean that national currencies will be devalued, national policies will change, national economies will be affected. So that's that's going to happen. And they'll also be speculating on, on companies and buying things like companies. So they'll be buying real assets. They'll be buying the real assets that support real jobs and real livelihoods. So if this thing gets huge, then I, I don't see how the wall can possibly protect the ordinary people from the effects of, of the speculation. That then also comes to, to the issue of how do you essentially underpin gambling because you you're saying you're saying to something that this is getting quite close to to betting on the horses i actually think it is exactly like betting on the horses, <laughs> betting on the horses right now, i'll tell you i'll tell you when when i worked in a hedge fund david nobody tried to catch it in any special language or anything like this that was a good bet you ran today that was a good bet they this is this is absolutely what they're doing they are betting part of the problem that i always had with it was it's to a certain degree a zero-sum game because hedge fund A is only there to try and steal money from hedge fund B, who's trying to steal money from hedge fund C, who's trying to steal money from hedge fund D, B, and A. And of course, all these people are managing, as you say, pension funds money. They're managing, uh, there is now, there's now no separation between and no limits on local authorities, as we've already mentioned, on pension funds, on uh, every aspect of our lives being invested in a hedge fund, which is uh, taking part in these types of activities, the risks are extremely high. We've seen local authorities already burnt through the Icelandic banking collapse, but we've seen in recent, in the last year or two, that that they're investing in instruments which are just as speculative and just as risky as the Icelandic banks were. And if you say to a gambling addict, uh, here's the deal. Um, we'll bail you out if, if there are losses. How much do you want to bet? Then he'll bet everything. Right, but this comes back to my original question because the only reason that we're prepared to bail them out is because the banking system has become one big blob and the effect of it collapsing is unconscionable for most people because of the effect that it will have on what's in our commercial banks. Yes, but that's because the commercial banks are inherently insolvent. If you, if you have um, the one big blob analogy is very good because I, I think that's correct, right? We, we've taken an inherently fraudulent commercial banking system. We've taken a merchant banking system that's headed towards the um, ethics of the horse track, of the racetrack, and we've taken a central banking system and a government that's been ever more reliant on using those systems, particularly the commercial banks, but banking generally, to drive the economy, to generate votes, to gener generate a feeling of prosperity, to keep everything afloat. 
and they've they've bet the farm on this, right? So it's it's now impossible for them to back it because you the, what the hedge funds are doing betting on derivatives, something that derives its value from something else. I mean, it it, it sounds on the surface insane. What they're doing there isn't really different in kind from what the governments and the central banks are doing with the banking system as a whole. They are betting the farm that the banking system will will save them. The banking system will create wealth out of nothing. The banking system will not just service the real economy and be a sleepy backwater, but will be driving the main economy. And it's not sustainable. They've now gone beyond the point of drawing back. They keep talking about this, we're going to rebalance the economy, which is, which is code for, yeah, we kind of recognize that financial services have, have dominated to far too great an extent and maybe we should be doing real things for real people and base the economy on that. But they've no idea how to do it because they won't challenge any of the special privileges that have turned the banking into this Frankenstein's monster uh, which now dominates international finance, politics, uh, insurance, and everything else. You know, how, do you, how do you back off from that? And how do you insulate it? And, and even to some extent, because they're so committed to this as a model, some of the stuff that the hedge funds and the merchant bankers and what have you are doing is actually keeping the governments honest to a small degree. Right? That's a, it, it's a slight break on them if you actually build those walls? Do you make the situation better or do you make the situation worse? Uh, well, I would argue that, that, of course, they're not keeping gov- governments honest. They're actually holding governments to ransom. Uh, and it's that, that is exactly the mechanism by which the policies that, that banks and the banking industry and hedge funds would like to see end up being implemented because, of course, governments are totally beholden to that system at the moment. But look, David, we are absolutely out of time and we've barely scratched the surface of this. So one word which was used uh, in the last few minutes, and we've used it several times during the program, actually, but particularly in the last few minutes, was that dirty word that begins with D, which is derivative. And perhaps next time we do actually need to look into the murky world of derivatives, uh, derivatives contracts, and help people understand exactly what goes on in the speculative banking system. Because maybe before we can actually answer this question of whether a wall can be built around it, we need to actually look into what it is and and uh, try to explain or understand it a little bit better and, and see what limits might be put on it. I think that sounds like a very good idea, Mike. Um, we're not going to get any further until we, until we dive in uh, and look at the look at the the mechanics of uh, the impending catastrophe. So yeah, let's do that next time. Okay. Well, look. Thank you very much for joining me, and uh, we will be back again next week. Thank you.